Welcome to the Unsweetened Sayo podcast. My name is Siobhan Harris. I am a certified integrative nutrition health coach and the founder of unsweetenedsayo.com. I gave up all sugar and all flour on January 13th, 2018, and am finally free of my addiction. My mission is to help other sugar addicts find their path to freedom and live the sweet life without sugar. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 166 of Unsweetened Sayo, the podcast. Today, I'd like to welcome back Danny and Catherine Mullaney. They're returning for a follow-up interview, and we're going to pick up the conversation from where we left off last time. And to hear this part one, you can go to episode 138, which I'm going to link in the show notes. You really want to hear this episode. Um, So go listen to that first. And they live one day at a time. When they stay in the stream of life, they will fall and get up, fall again and get up, etc. Falling is a part of recovery. As explained in their first discussion, their life's motto can be summed up from the AA big book. The spiritual life is not a theory. You have to live it. Today, Danny and Catherine will unpack that a little more by talking about the 12 steps, which can be described as trusting God, cleaning house, and helping others. The joy of living, or the sweet life, as I like to say, is found by living honestly in community, which requires internal house cleaning and being of service to their fellow man, whether they are in recovery or not. As Catherine said in our initial interview, abstinence from sugar and flour is but a beginning. So let's go a little deeper with the Mulaney's today in living the life on life's terms. And just a little other background, they've been married for 34 years. They have three adult children and six grandchildren. Catherine is a poet and a farmer in training, formerly an educator, And Dan became an RN in sobriety and is nearing the celebration of 25 years of nursing. Wow. Well, welcome back, Danny and Catherine. So excited that you agreed to come back for a part two. Thanks for having us. Our first interview was just so inspiring for me. I just loved our conversation and just the way you and two, you two together act as a team with recovery. I just think there were so many inspirational moments in that interview. And I got a lot of feedback from listeners that they really, really enjoyed it. So I'm so excited that we're here for a part two. And I want to though, for people, and I know most people, please go back and listen to episode 138. But just for like a quick little recap, you know, when you're reading like book two of a series and it just gives you that little like recap of where you left off. Catherine, if you just want to give us like a little summary, maybe of of the first interview, um, you know. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Siobhan. Um, So as Siobhan has already said, my name is Catherine. I came into recovery and sobriety as a 19 year old. And uh, I remember in that interview, I talked about when I first got sober, 
I smoked two packs of cigarettes a day and drank a lot of coffee, but it was like hot coffee ice cream because it had a lot of cream and sugar in it. <laughs> but the sugar started way before the alcohol and people go, oh, 19 years old. I just started drinking at 19. <laughs> but I started drinking at 11 years old. And, but I was off and running before that. I grew up in an alcoholic home. And uh, really, I like knew pretty early on in sobriety that sugar was an issue. I just didn't want to deal with it. And then as we had kids and stuff, it just it progressively got worse. Even though I was always in recovery, it progressively got worse. And then... Um, in 20, 2013, I went into a different 12-step program, Adult Children of Alcoholics, and that's where I really started getting down to the causes and conditions. The AA Big Book says that alcohol is but a symptom and that we needed to get down to causes and conditions. So I started that in 2013 and learned how to be gentle with myself for the very first time in my life. And that started, that started preparing me to be able to surrender the sugar, flour, grains, surrender them and go to the next part of the path of my journey. And so we started talking, the last interview, we started talking about, you know, the benefits of, re of, you know, being sober, clean from my drug foods. And we also just started to touch upon um, what I would really like to talk about today, which is trusting God, cleaning house, not just cleaning up your food, but clean internal cleanup and helping others. So so that's me. I love it. I'm really excited to dive into those topics too. But Danny, do you want to give us a little Danny recap too, just so we're hearing from both of you? Sure. Um, so I was rather young too, I guess, compared to a lot of people. My mother got into Al-Anon when I was like eight years old. Okay. It was a crazy household. I'm one of seven. And um, a lot of good, good family stuff going on. And, um, but, you know, it's funny when I think trying to adjust my story to where was the addiction to the sugar part, um, I can look back, I can remember, you know what, I equate, I remember seeing my mom sitting by herself in the kitchen with a spoon and a half gallon of ice cream with a big smile on her face and how much pleasure it brought her. And I have that connection. I see that. I see that um, this woman who would be yelling and screaming and her life seemed like such a mess. And I saw such a calmness and a peace in her when she sat there with her ice cream. You know, I just have that picture in my head. And, um, but, you know, I was definitely addicted to sugar way as a little kid for sure now that i've learned about addiction okay i mean i got clean and sober in 1985 at the age of 22 and i've been sober since then it's been over 37 years of sobriety and uh, it's given me a life second to none 
However, you know, certainly, you know, even in the beginning, they'd say, you know, when you're struggling and stuff, grab a candy bar, you know, you do what you got to do to stay sober, you know. And so I never really saw food as a bad thing. And I definitely used it to comfort myself in recovery at the beginning. And uh, you know, it got to a point where it's like, hmm, you know, just the weight just started get gaining more and more. And it just was a, the thorn in my side, I, I'd say, over the years of my recovery. And um, I'm thankful I have not had many um, more problems than I've had, you know, uh, as far as uh, abusing uh, myself physically with the food and um, seeing, uh, well, you know, the form of a kind of self-harming behavior. And it's interesting, you know, what, I, what I've discovered is that um, I was using this substance, the sugar, in all their different wonderful multicolored forms. You know, people say you go to the liquor store and the bottles, they're so beautiful, look at them. They look so nice. Well, it's the same thing with the food, except it tastes so good and the way they make it and all these different styles and all these different, and you know what, You're an, I'm a nurse and how do they thank us every single holiday season? Here's some treats. You know, you deserve these. You, you're such a good worker. And so you know, I'm so grateful I made this for you and all these things. And it's like, it would almost be wrong to not eat. <laughs> but, you know, it really got to a point for me that it was really feeling that I couldn't, I couldn't not eat sugar. You know, I tried and I could, couldn't stop. And um, it really has been a journey just like with, with the booze as far as I am powerless over this substance if I pick it up and put it in my body and I'm so grateful for the um <clears throat> the fact that it's been a long time it's been over a year now uh, of no flour and sugar to the best of my ability you know um, sometimes I eat things and I'm like oops I really shouldn't have eaten that I think that had such and such in it you know because it's so hard to stay on top of some food you know but um so I'm glad I don't have those cravings, but the mental obsession is still there. That stuff I think Catherine was talking about, getting down to those causes and conditions that she mentioned. Um, and But anyways, you know, I tasted uh, abstinence before and I was abstinent for about two years and um, there was a lot of good in that, but I had never really dealt with what was bringing up why it was I was why I saw food as an as an excuse or not an excuse a food as a um, something to heal or something to make myself feel better and uh, I'm asking God help me to not see food as that but as a gift from him and something that is used to nourish my body and to take good care of myself and uh make that connection, you know, and it's funny because I had listened to our thing earlier too, and like to make that connection that, you know, food is, is fuel from my body and it's connected to my level of self-care, how I treat myself, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, someone said once that uh, emotional sobriety can be measured by my level of self-care. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love so that. Say that one more time. I <laughs> My emotional sobriety can be measured by my level of self-care. And I will say that unequivocally that I'm not so sure if I've had a, an entire day of emotional sobriety in my life. <laughs> so, you know, having said that, you know, I really do see now more and more that what I eat is part about my self-care.
Mm-hmm. So as far as my history goes, you know, there and I could go into the alcohol, drugs, all that stuff, gambling, any, you know, I've discovered that, you know, even food wasn't, isn't really my problem. My problem is I have this addictive personality that uh, you put a substance like that into me, you know, and all the science I've learned about, you know, the, the, the sugar, what it does to the brain is just like overpowering, like it's an addiction and I have it. I have this thing, you know, and uh, moderation doesn't work. I can't have anything. I can't have a little in safety. And so if I don't have that first bite of flour and sugar, I feel I feel safe from the cravings, you know, but um, where I am today is a whole nother story. And um, and so I won't get into that right now, but I'll stop there for now. Ooh, teaser for later, checking back in with with Annie about where he is now. But I'm glad you said, too, it's been about over a year now of no sugar and flour. So just to kind of, yeah, follow up. So yeah, that's huge. Um, so yeah, well, let's go back then to, to Catherine, because I love this too, about, you know, trusting God, cleaning house and helping others and, and the internal house too. So talk to us more about, about that. Yes. Happy to. So <clears throat> Like self-knowledge will not fix it. Like I was aware of like, I guess in essence, I was aware of having an addictive personality early on in recovery when I was 20, 21 years old. And um, during that time, because that's where it began. When I first got into 12 steps, I was like, I saw this big blue and gold sign that said, but for the grace of God. And I just went, oh, give me a break. <laughs> because I had tried God and found him wanting. But that's because of the lens that I grew up with was this getcha God. Like, I'm just, I am so bad. And God's going to get me. So. I had like kind of left that, thought I left that behind. And then my first AA sponsor said, are you willing to believe that I believe that there's a power greater than yourself that is watching out for you? I was like, yeah, I could do that. I can believe that you believe. And that's all I needed, that that willingness. So as you can imagine, 37 years later, um, there's been a spiritual journey. And Bill Wilson called AA a spiritual kindergarten. And that it wasn't enough to, you know, just be following the principles of the program that we needed to grow along spiritual lines. So I've had many spiritual awakenings. The big book of AA talks about spiritual experiences that the majority of people have the educational variety where it's gradual over time. However, I didn't land in that party. I sort of did because I just believe that my sponsor believes. So I just, it was very simple and it is in a way still simple now because to trust God means to have a relationship with God. It means to believe that I am my creator's beloved. 
And in that, that's who I am. I am my creator's beloved. I am a beloved child, meaning that I want to live out of that belovedness. And so when that's foundational, then the addiction has its its proper place. So in a lot of 12-step rooms, with the exception of ACA, in ACA, when you introduce yourself, it's just your first name. My name is Catherine. In other 12-step fellowships, it's followed by, I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. But those words are super powerful. I am dot, dot, dot. Whatever you put in there, that is an affirmation. And I do not, I don't drink at all. (laughs) So to say I even drink alcoholically would be wrong because I don't drink. And so I am a beloved child of God who has an addiction. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that cannot, the addiction cannot be my identity. My identity needs to be in my belovedness. And when I can operate out of there, now that's, that's a high, high standard to operate out of there. 24 seven is not going to happen. Like Dan said about the emotional sobriety, no one's going to have 24, never mind, you know, 30 days, no one's going to have 24 hours of continuous emotional sobriety. However, we can have stretches of that. And for me, that is by trusting and relying upon my creator instead of just myself. Mm, I love that so, so much and how you change the the way you say it, because like you said, there's power in the way when you make it an affirmation like that, and just that shift makes such a big difference. So I yes. really, really love that. And I don't think that's anything, honestly, we've ever talked about on the podcast before. So I really like that. I am not in the 12 step world at all. So I always enjoy hearing like this kind of stuff, because I think there's so many people that are and can. So thank you for for sharing that. Um, Thanks for asking. Yeah, I love that. Is there anything, Danny, that you want to add there or anything? Um, yeah. Yes. I, um, you know, I, I don't know how you feel about um, uh, uh, foul language, maybe, um, but uh, we actually had an opportunity to go through with some other members of our our Sugar X group about we went we went through Russell Brand's book on recovery oh. mm-hmm. and it is a great explanation of the steps for everyone. I think it's wonderful and and in the big book it talks about it says it's a design for living that works and keeping it that simple it really does and it's not so much that we can sit here and tell you guys oh this is how you do it. It's more of a process of living that has really changed our lives and given us that design for living that we didn't have growing up in such dysfunctional homes. I had no, the design I had for living was completely like crazy, not crazy, but it just wasn't, I didn't, we didn't have a design for living, so to speak. 
So everybody was like every man for himself, figure it out yourself, you know? So learning how to practice self-examination and, you know, um, how to surrender my will and how to let other people help me in my life, you know, <clears throat> that being probably one of the most key points is learning that I'm not alone and that I don't have to recover alone, you know, that like, uh, like I, I recover by myself, but I don't have to do it alone, if that makes any sense. Like I'm the one who has to recover from my specific issues. And one of the things that stuck out from listening to our old one was when you were talking about letting, you know, the other people in to our lives, the community aspect that we need other people. And uh, that's, those are the inner things, getting rid of that shame about asking for help and the guilt of, I should know how to do this, you know? And I heard of a, uh, an acronym for shame was uh, should have already mastered everything, which like keeps me from asking for help and that there's no shame in letting other people help me. Mm -hmm. And those are the inner things that get in the way of recovery is that lack of, um, uh, I guess I could hear it in what Catherine was saying, that lack of, like, I have value. I deserve this recovery and I'm worthy of recovery. And those are hard things to say. It's one thing to just flippantly say, of course, yes, I deserve recovery. I, I, but to really believe it, you know, that I deserve this. And, you know, I have intrinsic value in this world and I am worthy of making the best effort I can to, to live uh, free from addictions, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that internal stuff is the hard stuff. And I'll say that, you know, segue that into my feelings of com comparison, comparing myself to Catherine and, and seeing that she has done, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, she has done so much better than I have as far as recovery of, of like cleaning house part, you know? And um, I was nervous to come on because I feel like, okay, well, we would, we did it before. Now we're doing it again. We should be all better by now. Let me tell you how this works. <laughs> and it's all up here in my head. I know you're not expecting that and no, can anyone deliver that? But um, when I think about, it's amazing. Cause um, you know, they, I did. I went to this one day challenge of crushing the cravings again, just as a recap, and I go through it and stuff. And even going through it again, my the way I dissociate from reality and from my own body is amazing. I've seen my wife break through many barriers of of becoming more associated with herself, and she shares little nuggets with me of these things she's reading and doing, and I'm like, huh that sounds like me, you know? And uh, then I struggle with uh, listening. I, I think it's part of the addiction. I don't know, but it, it could be just all the woundedness of childhood or whatever it is that keeps me dissociated from my own body. And um, I shame myself into thinking I should be further than I am. I should know better, I, you know, should have already mastered everything. And. And it's really hard to get over. And I think it's part of what has kept me struggling more is the failure to break through that and going to things that aren't flour and sugar, you know, maybe watching too much Netflix or 
just staying up late and uh, eating abstinent food and too much of it. Um, still using it to to escape how I'm feeling, you know. And uh, so, because I'm still struggling in that, you know, there's this part of me that is very negative about that and and thinking I should be here, but I'm there. And what is wrong with me? Instead of that, I am, you know, doing the affirmations like Catherine was talking about. I am, I am loved just the way I am, and so. Still struggling with that. Annie, thanks so much for being so vulnerable and sharing that. Because I can't tell you how many people listening are like, me too, Danny, me too. You know, like, because really it is like, I'll be five years and I've had one of my hardest years in recovery this past year yet. So like, it's, and then, yeah, and I have the same thoughts. Like, I thought I was past this already. What's happening? But yeah, it's so, and it's so hard not to compare ourselves to others. So that's where it's so nice that you too, but I can see how that would be really challenging too. Like, oh, Catherine's doing it better. Like, I, you know, that has to be also inspiring at the same time, but th then feeling like, well, should I be doing it the same way? Where really the truth is we're all on our own journeys and it looks so different from for all of us and how we get there. So I say that a lot, especially in my group coaching in the beginning, do not compare yourself to anyone else in this group or anyone else, because we're all individuals with, you know, so varied backgrounds and all the pieces are just a little bit different, but it's so hard. I do it myself. Like, especially my first year, I'd be like, oh, well, that person also doesn't eat corn. I probably should give that like, you know, just trying to do it everyone else's way and not Siobhan's way. Um, so no, I feel like Danny, you are exactly where you need to be. And just that you have that awareness is amazing, you know? Um, so I think that so many people are like nodding along right now. Like, thank you for being really honest. Cause I think, and that was something I wanted to do more this year. And I still need to share kind of my, my bumps, which I'm going to in an upcoming episode, but it's not like life is perfect after you go abstinent. Right. And it is continued, like no one's recovery is perfect. And it just, I just want to be able to start sharing more of these stories for people. Like it's so much better in so many ways, but yes, there's still challenges and struggles that we have. Um, and there's a lot of people that like, you know, you were even saying could be, I've had people reaching out to me really recently. Like I was sugar and flour free for three years and I had a big relapse and I can't get back on track. So again, there's so many, this is something that's so hard, partly because with food, like you were saying, I might've accidentally sugar and flour because there's so much in things that we don't even know, right? Like out of our control somewhat. Um, whereas I think it compared to like alcohol and other things, but like food, I just that it's a little trickier because um, they just add so much stuff. And especially if you're like, for me, when I travel, I just kind of know I can just only do the best that I can right now. And that's enough. Um, and that part of that, getting rid of that perfectionism, you know, that a lot of us have, um, and just accepting, like, I'm doing the very best that I can right now. So, and I also think with those affirmations, like you both are talking about, um, I kind of posted about this on Instagram recently. I did a photo shoot for my website. I used to hate having my photo taken. I still don't love it. But for the first time, and I've been saying this for years, I love and accept myself exactly as I am. 
I didn't mean it, you know, I just said it. And now though, for the first time, I actually feel that, but it probably took like, I don't know, eight years <laughs> or more of saying it every single day. So I think even just, um, that's what I try to do. And I start having more of a negative or feeling not enough. I just shift that to, and really get strong on those affirmations again, because this is just all part of the, the process and your growth journey. So I just think, yeah, just that you're so aware of it, I think is amazing because so many people wouldn't even recognize that. So you were talking too about like kind of cleaning house, right? So Catherine, talk to us a little bit more about that cleaning house and the internal house cleaning, like what, what do you mean by that? Oh, and I also want to say, because you mentioned Russell Brand's book, again, not a 12 stepper. I loved his book, you know, and Anna Freelings too, um, you know, with the Scrooge and the 12 steps, because it really, for people that don't get it, I mean, it explains it so well. And I really would suggest mm. his audio book because he reads it and I don't know, or something, it was just fabulous listening to him do it. So yeah, I think that's a great, great way to kind of get aware of the, of the 12 steps. But anyway, yeah. So talk to us about this internal house cleaning. What does that even mean? <laughs> yes. Dan alluded to it. Another way to describe it is self-examination. And Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living. That's a pretty powerful statement. Mm -hmm. So to see what it is in myself, starting simply through the 12 steps, you simply start with resentments, fear, and your sex conduct. That's what you start with. And to look at the people, places, and things and ideas that have pissed me off. <laughs> But the, my favorite definition of resentment is uh, rehearsed anger. Mm. You just repeat it over and over again. You ruminate on it. You meditate on it. Mm. And it just is a poison to your being, to my being. Resentment is a poison to my being. And I grew up with a mother who... Like that was a part of who she was, was resentment. And that is like passed down mm -hmm. easily. It's caught. It's not taught. It's caught. And so looking at that, those things, like since it's Christmas time, I'll share one of my resentments I had that I no longer have, but I had. Um, when I was nine years old, I found out that Santa Claus wasn't real. And so I took that as my parents lied to me. And from then on, I didn't really trust my parents because they lied to me. And I, I remember being so resentful and having to like, I recently came across the picture of me and my three younger siblings, you know, our picture with Santa Claus. And that was the like day that I found out. And so just to share a simple process. So I look at that resentment. I resent my parents because they lied to me about Santa Claus. 
So then I ask myself, where was I selfish? I look at my part. Where was I self-seeking? Where was I dishonest? Where was I fearful? I wanted to be able to trust my parents implicitly. That's not a bad selfishness. That's actually a need that a child has growing up to be able to trust their parents. How was I self-seeking? Well, I just, I just implicitly trusted them. You know, up until that point, I just, children think of their parents sort of as gods when they're growing up. And then they, they fall down and they show their humanness. And you're like, what, what happened? So just putting my trust in them. So where was I fearful? Who am I going to trust now? Who can I trust? And this is a part of like my being compulsively self-reliant. I'm not going to ask my parents for help. I'm not going to ask any God for help. I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask you or anybody else for help because of that. So that fear of not being able to trust anybody. And then lastly, the dishonesty, like where was I dishonest? Well, I think my parents were, they were just doing the best they can. They were going along with the culture. You just have this thing. But in unpacking this a little bit more, it was like it was used as a weapon. If you're not good, Santa is not going to bring you anything. And I remember like being in a train station and hearing a parent yell at a little one, probably four or five years old. You know, Santa's not coming to your house. And, you know, that you need to knock it off right now. And just like this trigger inside me. And I wanted to like go and defend the kid. <laughs> and I wanted to like go and push that parent to the ground. Leave them alone. It was so visceral. Okay. So this is the stuff. This is, I'm just like scraping, scraping the, the top here. This is like the top of the iceberg and going down. But these resentments, this is a huge one because it displays the lack of trust. I lost trust in my parents. And now I had to just rely on myself. And I was nine years old. Mm. <laughs> this yeah. is such a good example. And I love the way you talked us through what that actually looks like the process is like identifying and then asking those questions. And now though, you've really stressed me out because I have a nine and seven year old. And it's really funny because I do not like lying to them about Santa. So what did you do with your kids? Like, I'm just curious now because it yeah. does make me uncomfortable well, that was not my my purpose here. But, uh, um, no, but it's, it is. It's a really good example. Now, yeah. I did not have the same experience. Like when mm -hmm. I found out, like I was just like, oh, it's just kind of like a secret magic that we like the way my parents explained yeah. it. But I'm afraid that yeah, it could it could hit someone differently. So I am it just can, curious. Yeah, it can hit differently. So because yeah. of that, when um. So Dan and I are Christians and we became Christians as young adults before we had children. And so we put the focus on the birth of Christ. Now, when they were little, 
our kids, they loved playing pretend about Santa and that we were like, okay, Santa fills your stocking, but mommy and daddy give you the presents under the tree. And we talked about St. Nicholas was a real person who actually brought, um, I think it was in the Netherlands, but brought gifts to poor children. And it was actually on December 6th, I think is, is St. Nicholas Day in the Netherlands. So we like had little books about that, but my kids love imagination. They love playing pretend. So they had that. And we also like had an advent calendar and that was geared towards the nativity. And so we had the best. Now, one of our children was a truth teller. So then you got cousins, right? You got neighborhood kids, right? So, okay. When Santa comes up, you need to not tell anybody. If they say they believe in Santa, just zip it <laughs> and let them believe. And so our truth teller told a cousin. That cousin lived with my parents and my father gave me the business. And so he said to me, he said, told me what happened, you know, between my child and his grandson that was living with him. And he's like, what am I supposed to do? I said, you could tell the truth. <laughs> which just made my father even angrier what a radical so, thought there yeah <laughs> yeah but this is so interesting it is that's a really good example and very timely right now with with Christmas but what I really like is how you walked us through what that kind of looks like like an example mm -hmm. of cleaning house I don't yeah. know Danny if there's any like example yeah, or anything you want to I add would, to the cleaning house I think I'd like to share one and um and um <laughs> just to show you that this, to, just the power of recovery and I'm doing recovery together with my wife that I'm not afraid to share this because she knows this as well. But um, to just touch on that thing, I, I was just say that children love, children have amazing imaginations. You know, I'm going to be in a play and uh, someone recorded one of my scenes on the stage where I played this guy named obstinate and I'm very obstinate, you know, and uh they, she showed it to her grand, her kids, my grandkids, and they said, how does Papa do that? Like, to them, I became a whole different person. Mm. So their imaginations are great, and it's, it's perfectly fine to say, you know, well, you know, about St. Nick, and this is where it came from. So if you'd like, we can pretend that there's a Santa. And they were like, okay. <laughs> they don't mind at all. <laughs> they were perfectly fine with that. But um, okay, so it seems strange, but there is a direct connection to just writing this stuff out, reading it to another person, and something happens. You know, it's reading it out loud to another person really kind of confirms because honestly, I can just budget with God. You know, I know you know this about me, God. You know, but when I read it out loud to another person, it becomes more real. But um, okay, so here's one. I'm just gonna read your resentment I had against my wife, and. Uh, be it right out there, Catherine. <laughs> I know you've heard this before, but, um, you know, 
in general that I'm going to tell you, because I had uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of them here. And uh, uh, the first time I did it, I had, I think it was 21 resentments against her. First time I was looking at this uh, many, many years ago. But, um, you know, things like she's overweight. She doesn't listen to me. She won't do what I say. Uh, she jumps to conclusions. Uh, she's oversensitive. Okay, some of these things. And how that, uh, you know, holding this resentment against her was affecting my relationship with her, affecting my sense of self-esteem, my pride, my feelings of security. And it gave me a lot of fear. So then I did like what they call a turnaround. So let's look at that. And uh, so where am I being selfish? And uh, well, I want her, I mean, and the selfish is like, what do you want? Well, this is what I want her life to revolve around me, serving me in all things, all the time to do it perfectly, too. Now, personally, I don't think that's too much. You guys to can't see Catherine, but kidding. she's just laughing away right now. Big <laughs> smile on her face, just laughing. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I know it's, you know, not realistic, but that's what I want. You know, I know yeah. what I want. That's what I want. Where am I being self-seeking? Which is like, what did I do to get what I want? Well, now we're getting down to some real stuff here. I, I, I would put her down in my head. I would push back and feel morally justified right in my position as the man of the house. I would get passive aggressive in conversations with her. Uh, I won't back down in my personal battle of wits between us. You know, like there's certain times when I'm just agitated, I just won't back down. Boy, it just caused a lot of turmoil. And I didn't know, you know, this is what was coming from those holding that, these grudges against her, grudges, resentments, whatever you want to call them. And then the dishonesty part, where was I being dishonest? Well, the other way I look at that is what's the truth? And so like, where am I being dishonest and what's the truth here? So mixed in there, I, I'm not trusting God or accepting her for who she is, that she is God's gift to me and uh, I concentrate on perceived wrongs of hers instead of my responsibility of love and service to her. I'm not minding my own business. I'm judging her and I'm, and I'm not trusting God to work in her life. Ugh. So I'm not starting to come around like, her. well, okay, maybe, this, you know. So then my fear was the one that got me the most was um, uh, my, what am I afraid of? I'm afraid that she won't listen to God that I will live a life of misery as a doormat, used and abused in a relevant existence, only to serve a selfish person and her selfish wants, devoid of any godliness, a wasted life. Holy smokes. I did not know that was in me till I wrote it down and I realized, oh, so me just being a little annoyed with her, it isn't, I'm just annoyed with her and it's her behavior if she would just straighten out. I got some feelings going on here that I didn't realize, but going through this process of recovery exposes what's really going on, you know, and that's like the self-examination part. And um, I just wanted to read a quick sentence or two from step 11 in the AA 12 and 12. And it says, uh, there's, it's talking about step 11, which is like prayer and meditation and stuff, you know, and it says, there's a direct link, linkage among self-examination, meditation, and prayer. Taken separately, these practices can bring much relief and benefit. But when they are logically related and interwoven, the result is an unshakable foundation for life. I love that. I love that, too. And, um, 
that's what I like about like that's to me that's where like you know and the 12 steps are not the way for everybody but I do believe it's a way and I've just we've discovered that it's our way the way God kind of really gets down to the nitty-gritty of our lives well let's look at your behavior Dan why are you resentful <laughs> you know like well because she you know every time I saw the censor well, well because she did this you know it's not you know, I've just learned to stop doing that. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so it's good. good. It applies to coworkers and everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, what's my side of the street here? You know, exactly. Yeah, it's so much easier to look at the other person. But yeah, like looking, taking that accountability for yourself. And again, thanks for the vulnerability and, and Catherine for, you know, just allowing that. Because um, <clears throat> I'm sure that's really difficult when it comes up for the two, you know, these things for the two of you. But then to be able to share that, I mean, that is such an, uh, like that, that to me is just why you two are so inspiring. I just think that must be so amazing, you know, to be able to share that with each other and understand, even when it's like uncomfortable or awkward or, or hard to hear, it just makes you that much closer, you know, like who else has these conversations? Um, and I forget who said like someone that says like everyone should do the 12 steps, you know, everyone, because it's such a good inventory of your of your own stuff going on. So, oh, I love it. But we're almost out of time. So I want to get to the last part because I know you wanted to talk about being of service. So let's talk a little bit about that too. And, and I, you know, that one's a little more self-explanatory, but Catherine, how did, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I'm going to link it from where we're coming out of self-examination and you just used the word Siobhan inventory mm -hmm. Dan alluded to sharing it with another person which would be step five and so that person who's hearing my fourth step in the fifth step is is being of service to me so they are not only are they being my witness of my recovery but they are being a power of example, showing me a way, as Dan just said, a way to be of service to others. So that's just a beginning. Um, but yes, helping others, how do I do that? So I think that, you know, it is a work of service, but by being of service, I actually help myself. And a lot of times, I feel like I get more out of helping somebody else, whether it's somebody in recovery or not, than if, you know, I'm just going about my business. So there are people. Um, so, of course, I have groups that I go to and you participate in groups. That's a way of being of service. Just just being present when Dan and I are in a group together consistently and one of us is missing people are like oh where's Danny you know is he okay because just our mere presence at the meeting is being of service because we are consistently showing up for ourselves and at the same time we are consistently showing up for others and then there's like even more intimate groups and communities like we just finished um, the group that we went through the Russell Brand Recovery Book with. We actually went through it twice. We read it as a book club, 
which is pretty, you know, that's a low threshold. But then we upped the game and we offered to go through it as doing the actual steps, studying and practicing the steps together. Mm-hmm. And so out of that, of course, we we started out with 28 people. We concluded with 16. That's more than 50%. That is unbelievable. I was like, you know, if we end with like 25, 30%, I'll be very happy with that. I thought you were going to say six and then you said 16. So yeah. 16. That's that's right. Yeah. So, (laughs) um, so during that time, because we started out big in order to um, effectively use our time, we did breakout rooms. And when we came to step four, where we're getting down to the causes and conditions, the inventory, we, kept the same breakout rooms every week. So then you have this intimate groups of threes and fours that where we were really supporting each other throughout. And we did that for the rest of the steps. Mm. And that, that organically came about because we asked people to make a commitment, not to just to the group, but more so to themselves like make a commitment for 2022 that you're going to go through the steps. Now we finished, I think in September, we finished step 12. So we went to another 12 step recovery book and we just did it as a book club, kind of like a chill show up, read, discuss. And that was a smaller group out of that group. Um, Because people for, you know, people's schedules change in the fall And, you know, being of service is quite often called the joy of living. Mm -hmm. I think it's in the 12 and 12 of my right, Dan, talks about the joy of living is, is being of service to others, because that's what step 12 is about. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Help me out, Dan. We practice these principles in all our affairs. We tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Um, and I'll just say along that line, too, um, that it's, I feel, uh, the thing is, if we don't have a good centered, so like, not self-centered, but a centered self, like we don't know who we are, then we could throw ourselves into the service of others. They call that two-stepping. I'm powerless. Okay, so eventually I got to help us. So I'll just help other people. And we never take care of ourselves. So we want to be careful to make sure that cleaning house part. It's not, you know, trust God, help others. It's trust God, clean house and help others. We we need to take care of number one, not in a selfish way, but if I don't put myself at the top of the list, then I'm going to lose out, you know, if we just jump into service. But it's kind of like the cart before the horse. Like if you, if I take care of myself, now I'm a... I can serve out of love as opposed to well, I'm going to serve because that's going to help me. And, but no, it's like such a gift. And I feel like it's that gift that's right under every human being's nose is learning is everyone can serve other people. And I think Albert Einstein, his famous quote is only a life lived in the service of others is worth living. Mm-hmm. And um, I love that quote. And I can't, I get so much out of being of service to other people. It really 
kind of inspires me, gives me a lot of uh, strength and a lot of gratitude for what I have. Because when I'm serving someone, like even, you know, I just, I'm, I'm richly blessed with a lot of things. And I'm not rich compared to the world, or let's say to American standards, maybe to the world, I'm certainly rich. I have a home to live in, but you know, I am rich in the fact that I, you know, I have a wife who loves me. I have three children that love me that I love. I have six grandkids. I can't believe that, you know, and um, <laughs> anyways, yeah, service is just a, such a, a great key, but I just don't want to miss the fact that taking care of, you know, that self-care is so vital because it's not a two-stepping, it's not a two-step program, you know, it's like, all right, I'm powerless, so I have to admit that, now, if I just help other people, I won't have to look at me, and that kind of leads to despair, you know, like, mm -hmm. no, we're, we're worthy of recovery and a lot of the joy of living, too, you know? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> oh, I, I just want to, yeah, I just want to jump in here, Dan, um, in alluding to that, the order, like one of my mantras through our step study and practice was the steps are in order for a reason. There is an order to it. And uh, just a lot, some people don't like this example, but if you're, when you get on a plane and they tell you about putting on your oxygen mask, you need to get oxygen first before you can help somebody else get oxygen. And so that is, that is key. And self-care is not selfish. Self-care is health care. That's how we take care of ourselves. And I think, um, the other thing, like we just did scratch the surface on, you know, um, we did just scratch the surface on self-examination, house cleaning. The other thing is when you clear away the, the wreckage, so to speak, when you clear away the mess, those resentments, fear, and um, sex conduct, then you can see the beauty of who you are and what you have to offer the world. Mm, gosh, I love that. It's the perfect way to end this. I don't, I want to keep talking. I love you both so much. Um, and, but that's actually probably a really good ending to this. Cause I think we're almost at an hour here. So this has been so insightful for me, especially again, not as a 12 stepper, but I think what you're explaining so everyone can benefit from from doing this process this inner work you know and and that is the highest form of self-care so i couldn't agree more with all of that so thank you so much for coming back and talking with me today and being open and vulnerable and i really really appreciate it thank our you pleasure Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. And remember, life is so much sweeter without sugar.